Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. NCP recently published a supplement entitled Unmet Needs and Short Bowel Syndrome. So joining me today are two leading experts in the field of nutrition and short bowel syndrome and authors of the article, Epidemiology, Survival, Costs, and Quality of Life in Adults with Short Bowel Syndrome. Those authors are, of course, Dr. Marion Winkler and Dr. Kelly Tappenden. Dr. Winkler is a professor of surgery at the Alperts Medical School of Brown University and a surgical nutrition specialist at Rhode Island Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. Dr. Tappenden is currently professor and head of the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and as of July 1st, will be the Dean of the College of Health at the University of Utah. Both Dr. Winkler and Dr. Tempenden have years of research and experience in the field of short bowel syndrome, and I'm fortunate to have them join us today. I also want to make a couple of other comments because these two women have been great leaders in the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. Both Marion and Kelly have served as presidents and are currently past presidents of Aspen. Both have been involved with JPEN. Kelly, of course, was the editor for 12 years, and currently Marion is one of the deputy editors. I also want to mention that just a week or two ago, Kelly was honored with the Aspen Champion Award. So again, thank you guys for joining me here today. Thank you. That's a really kind introduction. Before we start, I'd like to ask each of you if you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share. So Marion, let's start with you. Yes, I serve as a nutrition consultant for Kakita and for Vective Bio. And Kelly, any disclosures? Uh, the same can be said for me. I have, have been a consultant for both Takeda and uh, Vective Bio and have conducted research in this area for over 30 years. So Kelly, I'm going to start with you, and I just want to start with a very basic question so that you can set the stage for our listeners. Can you define short bowel syndrome and how we would classify short bowel syndrome? Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a relevant question because that's really changed a lot over the last 20 years. When I was in school, I remember memorizing that short bowel syndrome was the loss of 50% or more of the small intestine. And so at that point, it was a structural definition, but now there's strong recognition that it really needs to be looked at functionally and that if someone has the inability to meet their nutrient and fluid needs using their gut uh, and, and therefore is, is suffering from malnutrition or malabsorption, that that's really where short bowel syndrome comes into play. So, you know, the concept is the same. It's insufficiency or inadequacy of the intestine to meet the individual's needs, but it doesn't have to be a certain loss of intestine. One can lose less intestine than we would think would be a problem, but if their functional capacity is impaired, then we classify them as having short bowel syndrome. So over the years, Kelly, what have been the most common etiologies leading to short bowel syndrome that you've seen in your practice? Sure. And that's also a shift, both in my experience and what we know from the literature. The two most common etiologies in adults are Crohn's disease 
and vascular accidents like mesenteric infarctions. Now, it used to be that Crohn's disease was the most common, but in the last 20 years or so, probably due to the introduction of biologics and changes in inflammatory bowel disease management, now mesenteric infarctions or vascular accidents are the most common. And, you know, that does shift the population that we see because it's no longer that younger individual who's had multiple surgeries due to Crohn's disease that's initially presenting. But but now we see far more individuals in their 50s and 60s who've lived healthy, active lives, you know, often very healthy. And they then now have this diagnosis due to a vascular accident that was catastrophic and left them in this situation. For kids, it's necrotizing enterocolitis, Hirschsprung's disease, vol- volvulus, that kind of thing. You kind of alluded to this, Kelly, that there's been changes in short bowel syndrome, how we classify it, how we define it, what causes it over the last couple of decades. So, and you've been involved, both you and Marion have been involved in the treatment and research of short bowel syndrome for that period of time. So what do you think are the main components of current treatment and research and how has that changed since you've been working in this field? Yeah, so... Our management goal for short bowel syndrome really needs to be focusing on trying to rehabilitate the intestine as much as possible so that we can lower the parenteral nutrition or fluids that the patient is needing. Um, But typically we're thinking parenteral nutrition to avoid long-term complications like biliary, liver dysfunction, this type of thing access issues. If we can reduce their dependency on PN and enable oral intake as much as possible, we're going to be able to reduce some of those long-term complications. And this is really important. There's been such big recognition for this over the last 20 years because around the turn of the century, these patients were you know, these patients, unfortunately, are still told, they'll say when they wake up from surgery, the surgeon said they'll never eat again, uh, and and that this is just PN for life. Uh, and and it, the reality is that many of them do need parenteral nutrition for life, and we're so grateful that we're able to support them that way. But we want to try and minimize that as much as possible. And we do that through intestinal rehab. So before where we would put them on PN, would maximize anti-adjunctive medications like anti-diarrheals, anti-secretories, antibiotics, anti-anything that was their, their symptoms, and try and just let them ride and be as stable as possible on that. Now we recognize that we need to push the envelope a little bit, certainly give them the nutrition support that they need and manage their symptoms with anti-adjunctive medications as much as we can. But then we really need to start introducing an individualized, specialized short bowel syndrome diet that's really emphasized the individual aspects of their residual anatomy, uses oral rehydration solutions, and it enables them to minimize that parenteral nutrition just as much as possible. So, Marion, I'm going to shift to you and ask you some questions about this treatment. 
So we're hearing about intestinal rehabilitation and because of those advances in treatment, what can those now with short bowel syndrome expect regarding their daily living, quality of life, and even survival? Let me start with the survival part first, and I'm going to refer back actually to some data in the paper just to be consistent. But in general, the patients who do require parenteral nutrition can have excellent survival with very well-managed treatment with the avoidance, prevention, and avoidance of central line and parenteral nutrition-associated complications. So that has really improved with our understanding of how to treat these patients and how to decrease dependency on parenteral nutrition, as Kelly mentioned. But the data that's been reported start off very good. The two- and five-year survival probabilities, if the short bowel syndrome is non-malignant related, in early literature was around 86 and 75 percent. And then in 2013, when the same authors reported the, the data, again, in the more current cohort, at one year, 94 percent, at uh, five years, 70 percent, and at 10 years, 52%. So this reflects, I think, the advances in treatment. Now, as far as your questions about daily living and quality of life, I would say probably life adaptation relates to some underlying personality traits. In other words, there are some people who see the glass half empty and others see the glass half full. And I do think, although to my knowledge, it has not yet been studied, that this guides how people adjust and adapt to their underlying disease and their treatment. But the most important elements, I think, in helping patients and families adjust um, is for the patient and family to have a clear understanding of the disease and what to expect from the treatment. For example, I often encounter people who start parenteral nutrition and think that their diarrhea is just going to magically go away. And explaining that the therapy is geared towards keeping them hydrated and keeping them in good nutritional status is what they need to understand. And it may or may not reflect any changes in diarrhea, that that may have to come through diet and medication and other treatment management. But I also believe they need to have a sense of what the trajectory of being on parental nutrition if they need it or living with short bowel syndrome so that they have a sense of, of what to expect along the way and that these expectations can change due to advances in the field and new treatment modalities. On the part of the healthcare professional or clinician, I think they, we have to have a clear understanding of the patient's own goals and expectations. And this discussion really needs to occur frequently at periodic intervals uh, because clinical and personal goals may change over time, again, in response to therapy advances and to life events. So I think the clinician should ask each patient how they personally define quality of life, what factors influence their quality of life positively and negatively, and only then can we work together as a 
patient-centered team to address these lifestyle issues. And again, I think we as clinicians have to ask about the patient and family's goals. And oftentimes we may be on a different page and that's why I think these discussions are so very important. Mary, and that kind of leads me into the next question that I wanted to ask you. And you've kind of addressed this a little bit, but when you've worked with these patients over these years, what things have they taught you? I mean, we're trying to teach our patients, but certainly they teach us as well. So what have they taught you about how they've learned to live and maybe even thrive with their disease state? Yeah, I I think that I've learned a lot along the way from my patients, both from clinical practice and also from the research that I've conducted. So, and there's a lot of consistencies between what I heard in clinical practice and what I've been able to report from some of the qualitative interviews and thematic analysis I've done. But I think in general, those who do require parental nutrition, either in the beginning or along the way or indefinitely, see their therapy as a nutritional safety net. And they get a sense of security knowing that their nutritional and fluid needs are being met. And that allows them to test the waters in terms of diet, uh, try new things to see whether it impacts their GI symptoms or stool output, because they have that protection of getting their nutritional and hydration needs covered. I also hear and have reported that they see the therapy, um, uh, IV fluid or parental nutrition as being hooked up, tied down, but happy to be alive. So people have the ability to really balance the benefits and burdens. And most of them do minimize the burden and see that or understand that without the therapies, they might not be able to thrive um, or survive. I think also I've learned that education is key and this should be ongoing. I am amazed if I ask patients, do they understand what they should or should not be eating, what the signs and symptoms of dehydration are, what the signs and symptoms of uh, line infection, for example, might be, that they say yes. And then when you ask or probe a little deeper, they can't really tell you what they should call you about. So I think it's important to continuously educate our patients along the way. And that allows us to really, again, come back to their goals and expectations and introduce new therapy advances as they come. I also believe that patients I've learned, and I think it's important that we make sure patients understand that they have a choice that they have a choice who manages their care, that they have a choice if they require IV fluids or parental nutrition about who those providers will be, that they have a choice if they need a central line and the types of lines that are available, that they have a role in establishing their own uh, administration schedule that fits with their lifestyle. And this takes a lot of dialogue and conversation. I found that patients feel like we stuff them into a hospital schedule that not necessarily coincides with their life and what they want to do. 
they have a choice with regards to the multitude of treatment advances and to diet and medication options to address their GI symptoms and diarrhea. Finally, I think that it's important for people to find others who are experiencing the same types of living that they are with short bowel syndrome and or with parental nutrition. In other words, I think we need to expose them to the multitude of resources that are available for consumers and patients living with short bowel syndrome, resources such as online support, peer groups, and some of the many organizations and foundations dedicated to short bowel syndrome and or home parental and enteral nutrition, such as the Short Bowel Foundation and the Ole Foundation, as a couple of examples. I really like that idea of empowering patients by asking questions and giving them resources and kind of walking along the way with them to help them reach their goals. And certainly these are long-term disease states, so uh, we get to walk a long time with some of these patients. So, Marion, I'm going to address this with you, too, because both you and Kelly have certainly become leaders in the field of short bowel syndrome. But what about clinicians who don't necessarily do this all the time or may come across a patient with short bowel syndrome? How can they learn about caring for people with short bowel syndrome? Or how can we figure out where to refer our patients to people like you who have experience or centers that have experience with short bowel syndrome? Well, this is so important, and we're so well aware that there are disparities in terms of access of specialty expertise and care for short bowel syndrome. I've been asked this a number of times, both recently at the Aspen conference and in other venues, and I have to answer from a pie-in-the-sky type of approach. Like, I think we need to establish and use the telemedicine opportunities that have emerged and find some way to provide peer guidance, healthcare consultation, for example, to clinicians who don't deal with this every day. There has to be a way that we could have, say, a national referral base so that experts are well-defined and centers that have a complete intestinal rehab program or elements of intestinal rehab are made available even to people who might be in rural areas or hundreds of miles away from specialty expertise. But I think the best option right now is through the LIFT ECHO, the Learn Intestinal Failure Therapy ECHO, which is very similar in the GI field to in the IBD Live. Uh, it's an opportunity through a webinar-based forum using Zoom technology that cases can be presented with HIPAA compliance by any clinician. And the value of this is to get an international base of expert guidance and second opinion in many cases are just different perspectives on how one might approach care for the short bowel syndrome patient. So I, I think that that is a model for trying to disseminate knowledge and provide education to those who may not do this all the time. Marion, if someone was interested in the Lift Echo Project, how would they get connected? Uh, so the website is just www.lift, 
lifteco.org. And that can be approached just in the browser. And there are also links through Aspen, who provides continuing professional education for these forums. Thanks, Marian. I'm going to ask each of you this last question as we kind of wrap up. So since you've both been involved in research in the field, what do you think are the next areas of research interest or the place where we can have greatest impact for our patients with short bowel syndrome? I, I can go ahead and start with that first. And, you know, I, I think as we continue to understand the intestine, the physiology and pathophysiology of short bowel syndrome, we're going to be able to look at intestinal rehab and, and how we can stimulate that the best. We'll understand that more. And I hope that one of the things that that is extended and that we're able to get to clinicians and patients is the fact that oral diet and the nutrition that we use in these situations where we are considering pharmacological therapies to induce intestinal adaptation and rehab, I hope that we can further refine how important the oral diet is and that type of therapy is, is really value added uh, and, and will only be, be able to optimize the results that are seen for patients. So mine's more of a medical side of things. Well, I can I concur from the medical side, and of course, and this will not surprise anyone. I'm going to add my perspective from the patient side, and I have learned about the power of patient voice. And even when it comes to research, I think since the patient is the end user or has the most to gain from the outcomes that we're able to influence. I really believe that their voice is necessary at the very beginning of establishing the research idea and the research proposal, that that perspective or dimension is extremely important. And in the past, it's also often been a reaction to findings or results um, or a review of something that maybe been established. But I think kind of changing our focus and involving them as part of the research team would add a very important perspective moving forward in this field. Before we close, uh, Marion or Kelly, are there any additional comments you want to share with our listeners today? I really want to support what Marion's saying uh, about the LIFT ECHO program and just how how open we are to including people who haven't been real experienced in short bowel syndrome, but are eager to be able to give patients the best care that they can. Uh, we're, it's a real inviting group, and I, I think there's an opportunity for everyone to learn a lot. Marianne, any final comments? Uh, I just want to thank you for allowing us or inviting us to participate in this conversation I, I think that there's so much on the horizon and so much for us to learn. And as I personally reflect over the last three decades, it's exciting to see the advances that have been made in this field and, and really how, as you said in the beginning, patients are not just surviving, that they're thriving. 
Well, I really want to thank you, Dr. Winkler and Dr. Tappenden, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. You have a vast wealth of knowledge. I also want to invite our listeners to learn more about the unmet needs of short bowel syndrome by reading the collection of articles on this topic and the 2023 Supplement of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. I also want to thank Vective Bio for their financial support of this NCP supplement. So as we conclude, I want to remind everyone to share this podcast and other NCP podcasts with your nutrition support colleagues. And thank you for listening. <music>